The Promised Messiah, peace be on him, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Islam, states, When the blessings of Allah are near at hand, He provides the prerequisites for the acceptance of prayer. The heart is stirred, warms up, and begins to glow. When, however, the moment is not opportune for the acceptance of prayer, the heart lacks that tranquility which results in turning towards God. However much one exerts oneself, the heart does not respond by exhibiting willingness. It is so because at times God exerts His decree so that His will be done, and at other times He concedes to the prayer of His servants. That is why as long as I do not perceive the signs of God's willingness, I do not entertain much hope for the acceptance of prayer. At such times, I submit to the will of my Lord with greater pleasure than that which I derive from the acceptance of prayer. Indeed, I know that the blessings and fruits of this submission to the will of God are greater by far. وَلِلَّهِ الْأَسْمَاءُ الْحُسْنَى فَادْعُوهُ بِهَا يَا Allah has decreed, Most surely, I will prevail, I and my messengers. Verily, Allah is powerful, mighty. The Arabic expression, Al-Aziz, means the mighty, one who is dominant, but cannot be dominated, one who is powerful and superior over all else. Al-Aziz is that striking being who alone has the power to bestow prophethood upon man and to guide mankind towards righteousness. It is this eminent attribute of Allah that has allowed great prophets of the past to succeed in their respective missions. The chief of all prophets, the holy prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was undoubtedly the most cherished recipient of God's limitless favors. At the dawn of the victory of Mecca, the Muslims marched wholeheartedly after being betrayed by their treaty-bound brothers. This was a day where the inhabitants of Mecca witnessed God's might. The reign of cruelty, which had caused the followers of Islam unimaginable agony, was brought to an abrupt end. The peaceful conquest of Mecca was made possible only through God and His might. Allah's might is widely experienced by all prophets of this world. The promised Messiah on whom be peace came at a time when people had become void of morality and were ruled by Mulvis and extremists who no one dared 
to oppose. The promised Messiah on whom be peace expressed that at the time of his claim, not many believed in him. In fact, he faced an onslaught of ignorance, hatred, and ridicule. The promised Messiah on whom be peace faced numerous fatwas and false court cases were made against him. In these moments, it seemed almost impossible that the promised Messiah on whom be peace and his godly mission would prevail. But it was the might, Al-Aziz, that silenced the jesters, created love where there had been hatred, and brought justice in times of unfairness. Al-Aziz stood like a mountain safeguarding the promised Messiah on whom be peace from all forms of harm. This was the might of the powerful God that enabled his devout servant to reign over his opponents and to once again radiate the ever-bright light of Islam upon the darkened world. Al-Aziz is the great, altruistic God, whose power is dominant over all others. His might is a magnificent sign of the truth of his prophets, and their prevalence is evidence of his existence. This world would not be as it is without the mighty Creator. It has been written and proven time and time again that He will prevail. How then can one deny His flourishing superiority? You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Saturday Morning Life. Your job myself, Umar Bhatti, and my host as well today, co host, sorry, is uh, Hamad Khan. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, Hamad. I'm good. Thank you for asking. Uh, well, it is uh, sunny today, but a bit chilly. Uh, but we have another show for all of you listening today. Um, we're getting closer to summer. Um, that's the sort of feeling I'm getting, Hamad. Um, and um, but this uh, recent surge of uh, a cold air is uh, maybe uh, making me question whether summer is really here or is really coming. Three weekends away until the sun sets at 7 p.m. is what I saw the other day. So oh, wow. summer, hopefully, very much on the way. Um, so, yeah, really looking forward to it. Yeah, I, I know apparently it dropped to four degrees the other day as well. And, it's, yeah, it's been very chilly. Um, I haven't prepped for it. I mm. had like, some sort of frostbite walking up. But, yeah, yes. chilly and rainy. I was pelted by hailstones yesterday in London. I'm not sure if you're calling that either. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, I didn't. I know I didn't hear that word, but um, yeah, it was that. De- it definitely rained as well. So um, yeah, it is the, as people like to say, the British yeah. weather, uh, a bit of everything uh, in one day. 
But yeah, uh, we got another show for all of you. Um, we're going to start off with the news stories, but we have a, a juicy part uh, in the middle of the hour. Uh, we'll look through the current state of the UK, I guess, what we need to do. Um, there's a lot going around in the world, but it would be uh, pretty uh, damn not to look at the UK before we look at the rest of the world. But uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll probably probably start off with a news story, which is not related. related. It is sort of related, actually, to the whole world. And um, <laughs> apologies. It's um, saying that the Russian oil is getting into UK via a refinery loophole. Now, why is this controversial? Um, if you're not aware, uh, it's actually around... It's the second anniversary, as I was coming in, apparently. The second anniversary or second year of uh, the invasion of Ukraine from Russia. Uh, and so I thought this would actually be a quite a good story to start off with. And in this article, it speaks about how um, Russian oil is being sold to countries such as India and China, and then making its way to the Western world. Now, the Western world, which is, of course, EU, UK, and the US, are trying to uh, maintain a strong defense that look we're not going to um, take any products we're going to uh, from Russia we're not going to take any products from Russia we're going to be very strong about our stance but we look at this and there's actually a loophole which allows Russia to sell off uh, their oil that they have made to another country uh, their middleman you can say and then they can sell it now again, it is most likely in within the article it's most likely been started in Russia, so the oil is originally sourced from Russia or refined in Russia, and then is sent to another country to be refined again. Then, so the reason this loophole exists and it's internationally recognised is that at the last place that the oil ha- was refined is the oil uh, that the, con- the the country's name usually goes to. So if it was sourced in, let's say. Uh, yeah, in this situation, if it was sourced in India or China, then the oil wouldn't be known as you know Russian oil, would be known as uh, uh, would be known as Indian or Russian oil, uh, essentially. So this is what we have here. And when I read this, I was a bit a bit um, a bit shocked to be honest, uh, because um, you can say that this that we we the UK or the British government or people have a very strong link uh, to this war in Ukraine, whereby. They're taking such a strong uh, stance. Support for Ukraine war uh, is really high amongst politicians and also the general public uh, who are more in favor of trying to defend Ukraine. And um, it just seems a bit more uh, hypocritical now uh, for this to have come out. I don't think this is uh, hugely in the news, so I thought that's why I would mention this. Um, but I'm, I'm assuming you guys are probably questioning whether there is actually a way to stop this and there is it's a simple change of law um of course it's internationally recognized so other countries can still adopt this measure but it, it is uh it it, it it can be done um it just requires a law change now the question would be does the uk have enough firepower or resources to be able to do this because if it doesn't which in factual evidence, it doesn't because it doesn't produce enough diesel fuel or oil uh, to uh, be self-sufficient. That would essentially mean that um, we would be struggling as a nation. So there are some things that 
the government will need to take into consideration if it is looking to change the law, whether it can accept oil that has come through a middleman when it's most likely been produced in Russia. Um, Hamad, I just wanted to get your view on this, actually, and just want to, want to know whether you're actually aware of this yourself. Yeah, no, no, definitely not aware of it. I, I always think it's quite interesting how the length that we'd go to in our foreign policies and in our attitudes against Russia um, to not, to not, to not um, um, basically use their fuels, to, you know, to keep up the appearance, um, uh, as they say, to say that we're trying to, you know, fight against Putin or whatever else, and regardless of the political reasons. I'm also just thinking about the the carbon emissions for that. You know, of course, we're trying to transport fuel, but it has to go to all the way to China, then from China to us. Um, yeah, it's quite extraordinary. Yeah, and um, if you would not know that that um, you know, this is essentially helping. You know, if we are to put um, a bit more sinister uh, feel to this, then this sort of money is being put th- by us, the UK, to uh, Russia indirectly. If, if if you want to see it that way, so um, questions got to be asked, I guess. Questions got to be asked whether this this could happen. Of course, the Ukrainians um, are pushing for uh, the. UK, EU and the US to try and introduce some sort of ban uh, because it's not impossible. Uh, Already uh, they've tried to isolate Russia economically. Um, There are are, uh, experts on both sides whether it's working or it's not. Uh, Most of them say it is working, but we're still yet to see. Um, Of course, the country is also benefiting hugely from this uh, loophole are the two countries that are uh, exporting sort of on behalf, quotation marks, on behalf of Russia because they haven't banned um, goods or haven't haven't sort of made strong political views against Russia, which are, of course, India and and Russia, uh, India, India and uh, China, sorry. So that's the other re- reason why they are able to do this um, and, and and get away with it. But yeah, Hamad, what, uh, do you have a new story for us? Yeah, I do. So, I mean, it most likely definitely would have been covered on this show before, but it's the first time that we'll be touching on it. And it was um, King Charles' cancer diagnosis. Um, so this came out uh, just at the start of this month. Um, I'm just trying to look at where the actual official statement was. I've just lost it now. Yes, yeah, so there was a statement from Buckingham Palace, and they said um, during the King's recent hospital procedure, this was around 6th of February, even just before that, for benign prostate enlargement, a separate issue of concern was noted. And uh, the reason why I've chosen this news story is because it touches on a few important things, but mainly it was also the media's reaction, and I laugh because I'm bringing up another Guardian article um, of a columnist who brought together the sort of reactions um, from around the country. Um, there was one columnist who wrote, knowing that King Charles has the support of the people will strengthen his spirit. The King's diagnosis has come as a profound shock to his people. Um, someone else said that, um, Charles, we need you to be okay so that we're okay. We're not ready for William yet. Um, and then someone else similarly wrote that if cancer can strike Charles, what hope has what hope is it for the rest of us? He knows that we need him. Um, so it, reading that is it, quite interesting. That it, The sort of reaction um, from the media journalists, I, I, I think, veers into sort of hysteria. I, the reason why it, this entire story caught my attention was because 
it comes in the context of the NHS actually being brought to its knees, and we'll talk more about that on the junior doctor strike is my second story. But at a time when there's an increase in cancer diagnosis patients waiting for the longest time that they've ever had to wait, um, over 32 days is beyond the golden standard guidelines, and it becomes concerning because obviously your cancer can deteriorate. At the same time, you have obviously one of the richest powerful men in the country historically, a ruler, maybe not technically politically, but still a ruler in some sense, um, who's able to get immediate treatment um, for, from, uh, from the diagnosis. So I, I think that calls into it the stark disparity between public and power. And we all know that, that's not surprising. We'd expect King Charles to get top treatment. Um, but it's just, uh, it, it's quite astonishing, especially in the context that around now 300,000 people since 2021 have been forced or have opted for paying private health insurance for their cancer treatment because of the uh, waiting times in the NHS. I've seen it myself when I'm on placement, I shadow GPs and doctors in their clinics, and I'm surprised about how many patients say, oh, I think I have health insurance, or I think my job offers health insurance. Can I just go through that instead? Can I just have an MRI scan for this or that unit or the other? Um, so, it, so, it, so it's quite interesting, and it was um, in, intriguing for me to even hear about it. What was more intriguing, and I'm not sure what your thoughts are Omar, on this, is, again, this perception that just because someone is royal or just because someone is the king or the queen, um, they're otherworldly, other human, they're unhuman-like. So that, that's the way that we treat them. You know, initially, historically, we thought that they were given the divine right of um, ruling over others. Um, but even now, it's the way that sort of the media writes about the king and saying, you know, we wouldn't have expected cancer to strike him. The official statistics is that one in two people will in their lifetime suffer from a type of cancer now. That's how prevalent it is. Um, so I think this whole story exposes also our reaction towards monarchy as well. But I'm not sure what your initial thoughts were when you read about the news as well earlier this month. Yeah, it was, um, first of all, quite saddening to hear that um, it was uh, that, you know, His Majesty was um, suffering from cancer. Of course, our uh, best wishes and prayers are with him for a speedy recovery. Um, you know, at the end of the day, he is a human as well. So um, he has got a direct family as well who are um, sad to hear the story and affected by it as well. But secondly, also, he is the um, head of state for the UK, uh, at least if, uh, the, uh, whether or not he uh, we have uh, opinion f- uh, positively or negatively against him. Uh, nevertheless, having said that, um, I think um, it is quite astonishing the way people do tend to um, story uh, make make a huge story about how the king is or the royal family is sort of immune from all worldly problems because at the end of the day they are yes they they have got this uh, power heredity power uh, historical power going all the way down to centuries that they are some special people uh, and they you know they are to people uh, because that, that that's the state. Of, uh, of of our country and many other countries have also got royal uh, royal head, heads of state um, but to write articles where they are surprised that they're not able to uh, receive any medical news or that they should be immune from everything that's a bit I think uh, where people lose their mind and um, yeah. I, 
So it's, yeah, uh, I, th- I think people just lose their mind. Uh, the, it comes to the, I want to say it comes to the uh, fact that people don't understand that God has all the power or that there is a God, like, actually. In actual fact, actually, this story makes me realize that, you know, there's no one bigger than God, actually, because people have, yeah. of course, forgot that, uh, that, that that there's a need for God. But, you know, the story actually reminds me that there is a God, that no one is higher or better or greater than uh, Allah Almighty. So in actual fact, yeah. uh, to me, that's reminded me of uh, God Almighty, that um, regardless of who you are, what your status in this world is, how powerful you are, or how highly people regard you, you're still, um, I guess, to put it very harshly, a no- nobody in front of uh, God Almighty. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you're quite right. It's the concept that, you know, death, disease, disorder, it comes for us all at the end. Um, and there's no station that can protect you from that. But he, he, even on the, you know, your, your point on, you know, he has a family at the end of the day. And it's, it's a shame that we try to dramatize it. it. It was quite nice. And apparently Queen Camilla broke royal protocol when she left, um, uh, when she came with him to the clinic. Mm-hmm. And actually when she stayed there for six hours and then left. So historically, the, any royal that's been treated for any medical condition, whether it was Prince Philip previously or even the Queen, um, Queen Elizabeth II, mm. they did it on their own. Mm. Um, but she broke royal protocol, which is quite interesting to see. And also just on the point that, you know, Charles, King Charles is the head of state of the country. Um, it, one of the other alarming things was the work that he does. So he's actually been doing quite a lot of work. Princess Anne, known for being one of the hardest royal workers, 473 engagements last year or something around that. Um, King Charles very closely followed behind with 457 in just his first year as an official royal. So, of course, that's also something that people were concerned about and are worried about. Um, but, you know, like you said, we wish King Charles all the very best for a very speedy recovery. Um, but just an interesting story that brought to my mind. No, it was. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. Um, I'll take a uh, next um, meander to another another story, <clears throat> and this I actually found on LinkedIn. Uh, I was just scrolling through one day, and um, we talk a lot about AI, uh, what's happening with AI, and I guess this chat box sort of a uh, chat bot, sorry, uh, messed up here and uh, lost something, some money for the uh, for an airline. So what's happened here is, um, let me just read you the title. Uh, Air Canada has to honor a refund policy its chatbot made up. So you can already see that uh, maybe AI is not the smartest of uh, tools that we think that uh, uh, they may be. Uh, So what's happened here is that a grieving passenger was trying to uh, book um, a a ticket, an airline ticket with uh, Air Canada, and it was, you know, most uh, more importantly, misled by the chatbot inaccurately, uh, explaining the bereavement po- travel policy uh, Air Canada has. So the key here um, was that um, the person in question's mother, a grandmother had died and uh, he wanted to visit uh, the uh, you know her grandmother immediately and he was unsure what uh, how the um, bereavement rates worked and he had asked chatbot to explain. Now just taking a step back, uh, which I have literally here in the office as well because I just rocked back to my uh, chair, um, we know that AI is a very powerful tool. It's it's helped us a lot. Uh, and I also actually think about this or whether we can rely on the information that it says or whether we should really be going towards the person or 
to the T's and C's of the long, very small T's and C's to see what it is. But in any case, um, this person decided to rely on the information wholly and truly. And the uh, uh, and he got the Air Canada into a legal dispute. Now, um, he tried to uh, request a refund uh, because the refund policy was that you could refund within 90 days. Uh, but the policy explicitly stated that the airline will not provide refunds for bereavement travel after the flight has been booked. Now, those are two contradicting statements made. And now you can see where the trouble lies. This person, I'm just, gonna, I'm actually going to just name him. It's Moffat, Mr. Moffat. Um, Mr. Moffat um, ha, was disputing with Air Canada saying, look, your chatbot uh, told us this. I relied on this information and uh, re re I really should be getting a refund. Air Canada, however, were responding saying that the actual bereavement policy was available on the website with a simple click and chatbot isn't, shouldn't, should not have been um, uh, relied on and it actually... Uh, we'll up, uh, and one of his promises was we'll update the chatbot and we'll give you a £200 coupon to use on future flights. This, of course, left um, Mr. Moffat angry and um, it got into a legal dispute. Um, the Air Canada company tried to argue that it wasn't liable for the information that its chatbot had uh, released. Uh, but nevertheless, the court actually remarkably, remarkably uh, found in favour of uh, Mr. Moffat uh, because um, it's said that Mr. Moffat wholly and partly relied uh, on chatbot because it believed that the site was accurately giving information out as if as if as if it were another employee. So, really, uh, and also there's also of course um, always uh, another reason that Air Canada did not did not explain why customers should uh, also double check the information that they've found uh, in in the in its website and then also check with chatbot. So. We can see here that maybe AI is not the strongest tool. Um, in the end, uh, Mr. Moffat was entitled to a partial refund, plus um, it said here plus additional damages to cover the interest of the airfare and his uh, fees uh, for the cost. Now, having checked Air Canada's website, which the article says um, chatbot is no longer there, it's, uh, RIP. Um, and uh, maybe this is uh, one of many cases still to come around the world. Um, Therefore, Ahmad, do you trust? Uh, will you be checking in with the chatbot anytime soon? Sorry, the line the line is cutting out. But I think you were thinking you just asked a question. Yeah, yeah, I was just saying whether you'd uh, you, you you'd you'd rely on a chatbot now, having heard the story. I, you know, I personally wouldn't because I know because I I, I I know that, that that's just me. I, I personally would call you know and would want a human to reply. Um, but uh, what I find infuriating is what you mentioned there, that Air Canada tried to argue that its own chatbot, which is under its you know, company, is a separate legal entity as, it's, as if it's a sort of free-thinking person on its own, um, which is ridiculous, but what you expect from a company that's just trying to make profit and not get some lawsuit action. But regardless, I, I think it also points to um, how our relationship with AI has to work. And it's also interesting in the case of law, right? Because 
one of the huge ways in which AI will change work, I think, is in law and where people will actually seek legal advice, not from solicitors or barristers or any other sort of um, professional authority, just because it's expensive. And so they'll they'll turn to these free chat GPTs and chat boxes and AIs and whatever else. But um, I, I, I think it's going to change the way in which we need to work, which is not fully reliant on these chat boxes, not fully reliant on AI. Um, Yes, it can help speed things up. It can help, you know, us understand things better. But we we always need that verification process. That you know, have you talked to a human? Have you then, you know, that verification process? I think is really key. That is indeed. Maybe, uh, yeah. Hopefully, it doesn't come for my job. But yeah, let's just wait and see. I guess. Ahmad, do you have got another new story for us? I do. I'll make this a quick one, mm. which is a uh, junior doctor striking once again. It's the tenth surprise, strike, surprise. And it's, uh, surprise, surprise. But it's extraordinary that uh, we've gotten to this uh, level. Um, the reason why um, they, they've decided for another four-day walkout, which is starting from today, um, is because their mandate is expiring. So the mandate is the vote that the British Medical Association needs from its union to say they're allowed to strike because the majority now vote in favour for striking and that's running out um, and they still haven't had any form of talks from the government they've still been met with silence they've still been met with you know nothing essentially not even talks which is why this strike has gone ahead they did say that even if we were invited for talks we would stop the strike so it seems that the government is adamant um, insanely adamant um, to uh, carry on I don't know whether I'm proud or not um, of the BMA, I, this is sort of a sitting on the fence situation. You know what? I'm I am proud. I'm proud of their dedication. I'm resilient to believe in what they think is doing right. But I also think someone needs to think of it, think of this entire thing objectively, um, and see who loses out most um, in in this situation and in, in this circumstance. Um, as a medical student, I can't go on placement. Um, otherwise, I'll be illegally asked to do things that I'm not supposed to do. Um, so I'll be away from hospitals for a couple of days. Um, but equally, I think more, more, not equally, but more worryingly are the patients that aren't going to be treated. Um, is it the duty of the doctor to always care for the patient, even though they can't be, they can't be cared for themselves because they don't have appropriate pay, pay erosion of 30% over 10 years? It's interesting, intriguing. But I think it's more that all of this situation should point to the government and its lack of um, willing, unwillingness to talk. You know, if doctors are greedy, then why are the train drivers greedy? You know, train drivers are also going on strike. If train drivers and doctors are greedy, then why are the teachers greedy? They went on strike just this past summer. So it's interesting to see um, all factions of workers um, seemingly frustrated. We recently just announced that we're now in recession. I didn't think we needed that announcement, to be honest. I'm not sure about you. But um, yes, all in the context that the junior doctors have announced one of their last strikes before they get a new mandate. Uh, four days starting from today. I'm surprised that word. You're proud, proud of the uh, doctors still striking. Uh, I, I feel proud of their commitment. The or, commitment. Or rather, oh, okay. I'm astonished. I'm astonished by their commitment because mm. I wouldn't have expected people to still be so eager about it and have mm. that much energy. Like any, like any movement, like any uh, sort of you know anything that calls for change, you would expect people to be tired of it by now. Um, but I think it, it should be said that it's extraordinary that people are still, the junior doctors are still, you know, fighting for this, which shows just how much passionately they believe that their pay is important for them.
Interesting, interesting. Well, maybe we'll we'll delve into that idea later. But yeah, that was the uh, news roundup. We'll take a short break and we'll look at the situation in the UK. What is happening right now? There's a lot of things that are taking place that are election year happening, cost of living crisis, when a recession, just Hamad mentioned the NHS um, uh, strikes still taking place, strikes from other areas taking place, delivery drivers are now taking um, to the street and uh, and um, are striking as well, especially last uh, the, uh, the Valentine's Day that just uh, went past, uh, XL bully dogs, um, uh, you know, people who own them are, are striking, uh, not striking, but protesting, uh, People, uh, it, it's a bit everywhere, uh, the UK right now. Yes, they were just found a, a World War Two bomb in Plymouth. Of course, this is more unconnected, but still, there is a lot, of, lot happening in uh, in the UK, the small island, uh, but has such huge power and implication uh, within Europe and uh, to greater context around the world as well, to uh, to to an extent. And uh, it's important that we look at what is happening uh, to the UK, um, and of course. Uh, We'll be back after a short break. Join us again. Hazrat Umar, radiallahu anhu, was known for his great governance. He would often patrol the streets at night to ensure nobody was left suffering unduly. On one occasion, he was walking in the dark and he heard some children crying. Attracted by the sound, he went to the tent from which it came. Whenever he got to the tent, he saw a woman sitting before a fire. It appeared the woman was cooking something while her small children sat crying nearby. It was late for the children to have their meal. Umar, stepped up to the woman and inquired, what is in the pot on the fire? She explained that she had no food to give the children and had placed the pot full of water and stones on the fire in order to give them the impression that the food would be ready. Hazrat Umar, radiallahu anhu, was distressed to hear this. He hurried back to the state store, picked up a bag of flour, meat, cooking oil, and some dates, and rushed back to the tent. His servant begged him to let him carry the load, but he refused, saying, it is my responsibility you will not carry my burden on the day of judgment. Arriving at the tent, he delivered the provisions to the woman and told her to prepare the meal. In the meantime, the children, so exhausted, had fallen asleep. Hazrat Umar, radiallahu anhu, waited until the meal was fully prepared and the children were awakened and fed. The woman thanked him for his kindness and by way of expressing gratitude said, it would be far better if you were the Khalifa of the Muslims rather than that Umar who is not aware of the condition of his people. Hazrat Umar, radiallahu anhu, said, well, mother, Umar may not be so bad after all. Selections from the writings of the promised Messiah upon whom be peace the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam. God is the light of the heavens and the earth. Every light that is seen, be it high or low, whether it belongs to souls or pertains to bodies, or be it substantive or attributive, whether hidden or evident, be it subjective or objective, it is a mere bounty of His grace. This is a sign which indicates that the bounties of Allah encompass everything 
He is the source of all grace and is the ultimate cause of every light, the fountainhead of all mercies. His being is the support of the universe and is the refuge of all, high and low. He it is who brought everything out of the darkness of nothingness and bestowed upon everything the mantle of being. No being other than he exists by itself or is eternal. All other beings are recipients of his grace, earth and heaven, man and beast, stones and trees, souls and bodies. All are sustained by his grace. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Saturday Morning Life. You're joining myself, Umar Bhatti, and my co host, Hamad Khan. Um, <clears throat> just to remind you, we just had our, our uh, news roundup from sort of around the world, I guess, but more UK um, concentrated. Um, this is a live inter- and interactive show, so you can call us uh, to contribute on 0208 687 7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. <clears throat> now, moving forward to our sort of more topic that is, we want to concentrate on is the current general state of affairs within the UK. Uh, and why is that? Uh, well, the sort of the sort of uh, reasoning behind the show for this week uh, was um, now whenever I'm in the car uh, and I'm listening to uh, different radio sta- stations, slightly better than Voice of Islam, um, they uh, are all also talking a lot about what is happening outside in the Middle East, of course. Uh, which is Israel and Gaza, and also in Ukraine and Russia, uh, but also more more fervently now about the UK because it is election year. Um, it's it's actually if you didn't know Hamal, it's elections in seventy odd countries apparently, uh, or one third of the world, uh, something along those lines. It's Two billion people this year will be voting for their democracies. I think that's what I heard. Recently. Okay, so, so it's yeah, probably more yeah. than... Yeah, it's, it's, it's a crazy figure, right? Uh, a lot of people are voting this year, and a lot, a lot, I guess a lot, of, a lot is riding over democracies. We've already had a handful of uh, votes taking place uh, this year. We've got the US election coming. We've got the British election coming. Uh, I don't know if that, uh, there are some other big countries. Of course, Pakistan just had their elections. Um, there are... 
elections literally everywhere you look uh, and not catching a break. Uh, oh, isn't Russia t- also having an election or supposed to have elections? But in any case, there are a lot of elections. And of course, UK being one of the big power uh, power horses of uh, the world uh, is also taking part in elections. Um, it seems to look like that uh, the current incumbent government will be out of office um, and they are trying to salvage as much as possible um, and hence why uh, it is predicted that the general election of the UK will be in the second half of the year closer to well yeah second half of the year between July and uh, the winter time so that's when we are sort of expecting uh, parties to ramp up their advertisements, um, door knocking is going to start taking place. So expect a lot taking place, but also expect a lot of uh, sort of unwanted comments as well, I guess. Um, We've already seen uh, one article being published in The Telegraph about Islamists. Uh, Hamad, you probably all have have heard of this already, um, by Suela Braverman, the former Home Secretary, um, labelling... specifically that islamists have taken over again apparently uh, it always it always uh, makes me chuckle when people have uh, this um wishy-washy thinking somehow that um you know we need, we need some sort of extremist ideology here who can we blame oh yeah let's go to the muslims they've already done bad as it is um and they're always the easy scapegoat here yeah no absolutely so what she says is islamists are in charge of britain now and She's sort of talking about UK is sleepwalking into ghettoized society that threatens free expression. Um, I don't have words for her that I can say on air, but I, 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 th- I think it's, um, it's it, I, I, that word Islamist as well. I've always I, yeah. found it. Uh, I, I don't agree with it because it's it, it, the, literally the wording and the, the physical wording around that expression is that the difference between Islam and it's very extremist almost political perversion is just three letters ist it's it, and it's and i hate that like you know maybe i look into things too deeply but it's mm-hmm. it's it's also in the way that people who don't know about politics or islam and the difference between the two they conflate one one with the other which is also what zuela was actually i i you know i think it's quite transparent was trying to do um she wrote i think in one point i at least on twitter um that uh Islamists are trying to have um, the UK put put UK in a submit um, into submission, um, which is an extraordinary choice of words as well. Because one meaning of Islam in itself is submission, but submission to what? Submission to whom? It's submission to God. A complete um, sort of relinquishment of ego and of, um, of of hatred and complete submission to the uh, to the principles of peace um, and, and utter discipline. Um, which is what you know, what I stand by, what you stand by, what every Muslim yeah. in good faith stands by in this country. Yeah. Um, I think the issues with this country isn't with its religion, but with its politics. But that's my thought. Mm, no, that's uh, yeah. It's a bit funny too. Whenever I hear this word, people want to use this Islamist, jihadists, uh, whatever other words that there are. I, to be honest, I forgot about it because it wasn't much on the news. To be honest. Um, yeah. Uh, because there's been other things happening. Uh, preceding um, 
the war in uh, Israel and Palestine. But in any case, um, <clears throat> what at the moment the political picture is, uh, and I've got the polling or the voting intention by YouGov here, and it has uh, the Conservatives, the current government, at 20%, and Labour at uh, 46%, uh, big 26%. And um, at third, do you want to have a, uh, take a guess who's at third? I have no idea. Well, it's not the Lib Dems at the moment. It's uh, Reform UK, another um, right right side of the political ideology uh. taking uh, storm. Which uh, in in its uh, if you take off the veil, it's pretty much UKIP again, but without the Brexit uh, a mantra anymore. With more, we need to stop immigration. Which many people have said, well, wasn't Brexit the whole point of that? Well, apparently not. That is the case. We, so we have reformed there at third at thirteen percent at the moment. That is of uh, the dates. By the way, it's of twenty twentieth to the twenty first of February, twenty twenty four. We have Lib Dems at nine percent. We have the Greens at seven percent, uh, and SNP at four, and others at one. So the last four part three parties I've mentioned are at a steady steady rate. The rest are taking dips up and down of one or two, three, four, five percent. And most remarkably, Reform have gone from virtually 1 to 13 in space of four years. But yeah, that is the issue right now. Um, Hamad, uh, I'm assuming you're a British citizen. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Nice one. I uh, just revealed your identity to some extent. Uh, and you'll be looking to vote in your... Uh, oh, well, I'm not assuming, actually. Will you be voting, actually, this year? I Will you be using will. your democratic right? I... Uh, you know, I even, I, I even haven't had the time to even think about this. I, if you asked me that question, you know, a couple of years ago, yeah. when I first was start, uh, you know, uh, of the age in of youth. Vote, uh, in my <laughs> youth, yeah, 25 now, around yeah. eight, 18 <laughs> years ago. But um, I, I would have been annoyed if I heard any of my colleagues and peers say, you know, well, I'm not going to vote. I, I don't think it's worthwhile or, you know, whatever. I, I, I thought to not vote is actually a very um, sort of shameful thing to do. Um, but I, I, what am I voting for? I actually don't know. And I, 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 re, I really don't know. Um, am I disillusioned by the politics of this country? Absolutely. Um, if I vote for one party in favour of the other, is anything particularly going to change? You know, it, for me, it's about restoring peace around the world, but also to restore how we function as a society. And I don't think any politician has reliably um, instilled me with hope. Um, so I haven't even thought about it. I'm, I, that's my honest answer. Haven't had a thought about it. Wow. The young Hamad that I knew would be kicking himself, be like, why are you not voting? But this is, I, this I, is I, where I, we I, are. I read Raincoat proudly to my, um, you, you know, my... Um, polling station the first time I voted yeah um, but yeah now 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 it's quite um quite intriguing I, I, I'm not too sure what about you I know you're not I, I, I'm not a British citizen but uh, I still take great interest in UK politics because uh, I reside here and I do take part in my local elections um, still to an extent passionately whenever I can I do vote uh, at every occasion actually if I was able to vote at the general election I would um, now, the question is whether I would vote for the alternative, which is Labour, apparently, or whether I would vote for a third party. This is the question I think many people are having. Is, and and this is the problem I see, actually, with currently. Um, now, not 
the term being used right now in the political arena is that uh, this is not me um, portraying it. It's what uh, everyone I think is hearing and many people are actually expressing as well is that Labour and Conservative are ending up to be the same party basically but just with different colours. And the uh, what I'm scared of is that because Labour have such a huge um, advantage at the moment that their powers are will be unchecked uh, once the parliament once the new parliament becomes uh, official and open and once of course elections are done but also right now that they can put into motion and into practice what's going to happen and what is going to take place and we've just seen a perfect example of that happening in the recent ceasefire vote uh, whereby what happened was uh, was a uh, a scene out of a third world or uh, undemocratic uh, country or even democracy, you can say. So what happened, uh, which many of you will have seen, unfolded within hours or even minutes, was that a ceasefire vote was supposed to take place in Parliament. Um, and uh, as far as I understand, it's because oppositions don't actually get to forward their ideas uh, onto uh, onto the floor because they are not the government of the time. Their main objective is to oppose and try and, of course, amend as much as possible. But without the backing of uh, a majority, they can't. So what they what usually happens in Parliament is that they have opposition days, whereby uh, how many ever parties there are, everyone I think it's either a monthly or weekly will have an opposition day where they'll be able to put forward a. Uh, a law or a proposed law uh, to Parliament, uh, and now it was the SNP's turn. So there are currently, I think, Labour, Lib Dems, um, the SNP, Plaid uh, Cymru, Greens, and I think some of the Northern Irish parties as well. Uh, just to name name a few, about about you can see there's a couple of parties, about six seven parties. Now it was the SNP's turn, and they chose to put forward a bill that would. Um, be basically saying that we want a ceasefire within uh, Israel, uh, within Israel, uh, within the the war that's taking place over there, uh, Palestine and Israel. Uh, but what has happened is that no other party is allowed to put forward another bill. Now this is where the story gets a bit muddled out on whether uh, this has is true. Uh, the Speaker of the House claims that he was pressured, or at least there's murmurs around the political uh, number uh, the parliament area that he was pressured by Labour that he is to put forward their amendment too and this was because they are telling him uh, that they're, because they will be um, the party, the government next year he will not be re-elected again without their approval which is correct, they won't be because uh, every year or every sort of um, Every, anyone who wants to become a speaker of the house needs needs the backing and the majority, and it usually is an, an MP who doesn't really want to have a career uh, as a big MP, but just a, uh, a career as a local MP, and then become a speaker of the house. Now, they put theirs forward, and then the government also put their amendment forward, uh, calling for a humanitarian pause. Now the tradition of the part of the house is that they the speaker would reject both the Labour's amendment and the government's amendment because it is the opposition day and we would need, just need a simple vote on it. 
what has happened is that uh, the Speaker of the House, Selenzi Ho, put forward all three of them, uh, thinking that would be the best course of action. Now, this is what he has said. He thought it was the best course of action. He was acting in all lawmakers' uh, best interest, and he thought he made the right decision. Well, he didn't because the SNP walked out, and so did the government voters. Labour stood there, uh, well, not stood there, but sat down there in, uh, well, in, in their numbers. And you could see and you could hear all over the news and the radio and the phones were going buzzing that something crazy is going in on the, in Parliament. Now, Hamad, not the views on what's happening in Gaza and, uh, 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 sorry, not Gaza, Palestine and Israel, but more on the views of what happened, uh, sort of took place in Parliament. Um, it does seem to be, it, it, to my initial reaction was, this is not a functioning democracy at the moment. Yeah, I mean, even reading it out, and in all honesty, I wasn't actually aware of this until I was researching for the show. Um, that's just out, how out of loop I am. Wow, you're it's so out of touch, man. <laughs> I, I really am. I, you know, just got exams coming and going. But um, no, I'm surprised that I actually didn't hear this because it 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 seems quite extraordinary and extraordinary and unprecedented. And like you said, that the fact that the Speaker of the House um, Hoyle was able to just Past that motion, which historically it's not supposed to do. Um, yeah, it, it, it's quite extraordinary. Again, it's it's just another reason, uh, well, another sort of spectacle that sort of uh, disproves um, or disadvantages any notion of democracy in our country. It, it, it's unfortunate to see um, that, that that this is happening. It, it's so transparent as well, you know, like you said, that there was rumours, but those rumours have, you know, had some sort of waiting behind it that the Speaker of the House was pressured by Starmer and the, uh, the Labour Party. Um, and yes, okay, that's brilliant that Labour avoided this awkward motion passed by the SNP, and it would have been awkward for Labour and Starmer in particular because of their previous um, sort of views on the humanitarian pause versus ceasefire, and that was when Starmer actually suffered most of his blow in his leadership during the campaign this past year. Great, he's avoided that, but at what cost? I think it shows that our entire parliament is uh, compromised. And it shows what I said just earlier, that I'm disillusioned by politics now. That's not a fringe view to have. I mean, I, this just is a, in line of a long list of evidence that shows that. I don't know what your thoughts are. You're right. Um, politics in itself is already very complicated for a layman to understand. Um, and this just makes the whole process even more um confusing but it also does put the uh, electorate um it, it creates more of a distance because you want to create an easy system for people to understand but when you have uh, protocols being broken um then you're really questioning what is the point of having a democracy well there is a point of having a democracy but what is the point of having procedures in place whereby um it highlights what you need to do, but of course uh, we uh, we need to ride the way for now. Uh, in an actual fact, this also actually highlights the uh, issue that's in place in uh, the, the place that is in um, uh, Israel and Palestine right now. It highlights actually the issue hugely that how contro- sort of controversial it is for lawmakers to come together on the topic uh, and. Uh, 
why it is uh, difficult to find the middle ground between because one side's calling for humanitarian pause, another side's calling for ceasefire, and another side's looking to wholly blame Israel for, for, for its actions. Um, of course, there are opinions on both sides, but um, we'll, we won't discuss further of it at the moment because I wanted to more talk about the uh, UK's um, place uh, around the world and why there is sort of a turmoil taking place at the moment. Um, I guess, um, Hamad, um, we have the uh, first-past-the-post system within the UK, and it's not really uh, proportionate uh, as such. Yeah. um, You know, just before that, I I was just thinking about the ICJ as well, and you said that, you you know, we would talk about the politics um, as well. But, you know, in the context that the ICJ has also said that Israel has to give back the settlements and, um, you know, it's given its formal um, sort of proceedings after the hearings on that. And to hear that we're still debating, it it again shows that um, basically our whole... um, democracy is quite intriguing that it doesn't follow um, judicial standards Um, but I I agree about the first past the post system as well Um, it's quite uh, interesting where you know we cast a vote and then you know we have a candidate just needing one more vote considering it's um, from the runner-up I I I don't know what's an alternative I haven't considered alternative political voting systems um, I, I, I don't think that's the issue. I, I, I don't think the voting system is the issue, actually. I think it's the politicians who are unable to represent their people truthfully and honestly. Um, Jeremy Corbyn did it quite well. I, I'm not saying it from a political stance. I'm saying it from how he was able to represent his people, whoever he supported appropriately. Um, I, I just think it's when people bec- uh, get put into positions mm. of power, they're yeah. unable to you know, push forward the policies that they're built upon. Yeah. No, thank you very much for that. Well, we are inching close to a break now. So we'll take a short break now. But just to remind you all, this is a live and interactive show. You don't just have to listen to us too. Uh, you want to take part, do call us on 0208 687 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Uh, there's going to be the news break at 11, so we're going to break for that and uh, we'll be back after that. Uh, continue our conversation about the United Kingdom. Join us again. Azrat Mirza Majru Ahmed is the present head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the most dynamic international community within Islam. The community was established by Hazrat Mirza Khulam Ahmed in Kardian, a small and remote village in India. He claimed to be the expected reformer of the latter days, the one awaited by all major world religions. Founded in 1889, the community has continued to spread throughout the world, flourishing under caliphate, the system of spiritual leadership established after the demise of the holy founder. The current successor of this movement, Hazrat Mirza Masrur Ahmed, continues the work of the holy founder to revive the spiritual and moral state of mankind. The movement embodies the benevolent message of Islam and its pristine purity, a movement that preaches peace, universal brotherhood, and submission to the will of God. Ahmadi Muslims have earned the distinction and reputation of being a law-abiding and peaceful community. Within a century, the movement has reached all the corners of the earth 
and has been recognized and praised by the global community. Love for all, hatred for none. Those words from your third Khalifa are more important, more crucial, more essential today than they have ever been. And of course, the Ahmadi have always practiced this peace-loving philosophy. I am gladdened and inspired by the fact that the Ahmadis not only preach a message of love, friendship and understanding, but practice it fully in the way you include and invite others to share your gathering. An injunction to love all and to hate none is the avowed guiding principle of the Ahmadi life. I would thank you also that you have stressed uh, the importance of showing that Islam is the religion of peace, not the religion of hate, uh, as it was stated on the wall in the Yalsa, love for all, hatred for none. I think that is the message that the world really needs. You understand at a profound level that promoting religious freedom is an essential building block for peace and stability here and throughout the world. In this we are allied with His Holiness, a courageous champion of religious freedom and of peace. Love for all, hatred for none, is the message that we see in this mosque and from the Amadea Association. Your people have been the leaders in taking the peace movement that one step further. The huge respect we have, we all have, for your work day by day in making a reality of peace and brotherhood across the communities in this country and across the world. I think the words that you said uh, to my colleagues in the House of Commons ring probably a little truer, but hopefully a little more hopefully than they did when you actually said it in the House a few weeks ago. His Holiness began his address by speaking of the great conflicts that divide the world today. Wars being fought in different parts of the world. He worried of even greater problems. He then went on and said, it is my fear that in my view of the direction in which things are moving today, the political and economic dynamics of the countries of the world may lead to world war. Therefore, it is the duty of the superpowers to sit down and find a solution to save humanity from the brink of disaster. They were words, Your Holiness, I think, that were taken very seriously by all who were there at that meeting. <laughs> Wherever the movement has been established, it endeavors to exert a constructive influence of Islam through social projects, educational institutes, health services, Islamic publications, and the construction of mosques. These endeavors continue, despite the bitter persecution that the community suffers in some countries. We need all the goodness we can find in today's world. And I applaud you for your contribution in Britain and worldwide to community cohesion and the enjoyment of diversity that is such a precious asset. And wherever Ahmadis live in the world, you are renowned for enthusiastically participating in the larger community and peacefully living, living alongside people of all faiths, languages, and cultures. And I would like to pay an additional tribute to the work being done by Ahmadis in raising standards in Africa and particularly in education. Yes, Britain has welcomed the headquarters of the Ahmadis in this country, 
but it hasn't become something that's become, as it were, a closed sect in Britain. It's become a community that has sought to reach out to all of us. And that's very important, because the best way to break down the barriers of misunderstanding and prejudice is for that contact to happen, and I thank you for that. The Ahmadiyan community contribute hugely to interfaith forums, to the richness of our community, and that is the same that's reflected across our nation. But what I would like to pay tribute to you as well this evening is the contribution that you make to wider society, the important charitable causes that you support, not just for your own communities, but for the wider communities. And that is to be acclaimed and that is to be applauded. Writings of the Promised Messiah, salam. I call to Allah to witness that the Holy Qur'an is a rare pearl. Its outside is light, and its inside is light, and its above is light, and its below is light. And there is light in every word of it. It is a spiritual garden whose clustered fruits are within easy reach and through which streams flow. Every fruit of good fortune is found in it, and every torch is lit from it. Its light has penetrated to my heart, and I could not have acquired it by any other means. And Allah is my witness that if there had been no Qur'an, I would have found no delight in life. I find it that its beauty exceeds that of a hundred thousand Josephs. I incline towards it with a great inclination and drink it into my heart. It has nurtured me as an embryo is nurtured, and it has a wonderful effect on my heart. Myself is lost in its beauty. It has been disclosed to me in a vision that the garden of holiness is irrigated by the water of the Holy Qur'an, which is a surging ocean of the water of life. He who drinks from it comes to life. Indeed, he brings others to life. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Saturday Morning Life. You're joined by myself, Umar Badi, and my co host, Hamad Khan. We've uh, just, uh, in the previous hour, spoke about uh, the political uh, sort of system, I guess, or political uh, considerations that are taking place in the UK, um, mainly about the elections that are upcoming and and the very important vote that took place in Parliament and the implications of it. Uh, and um, we're going to move on to another topic, another hot topic within uh, UK, which it prides itself on uh, creating, which is the National Health uh, Service, more commonly known as the NHS, uh, NHS. Well, sounded a bit different, uh, but yes, the NHS, um, and um, it's one of the uh, cornerstone or one of the most recognised institutions of the United Kingdom. Um, 
well because it's free uh who doesn't love free things and well it's indirectly free but we love a bit we love a free it's free money when uh, we're not spending it directly or can't see it being spent directly um so we're going to talk a bit about that um but i just want to remind uh listeners uh that uh, this is a life and interactive show so you can participate with us uh, and maybe let us know what do you love or what you don't like or maybe give us some uh um some news stories that you want to talk about on 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at voice of islam uk um gonna have the section over to hamal um only because he has become uh politically uh sleep uh but uh with the nhs he's become awake uh and it's basically his friends and family that he works for now uh and that's where he'll be working for well hopefully he'll be working for in the future you never know Ooh. he might be one of those guys who just leaves uh says right, goodbye i am off uh, I don't. Yeah. Want, I don't want to be here. Or he might be one of the patriotic members of society. Like, you know what? I'm going through this with you guys. Omar, <laughs> tell us. Thank you so much, Omar. So, I mean, let, let's just talk about a cursory overview of the NHS, the health system, and how it relates to the health of the nation, um, as it were. And let's start off with something that we don't usually typically talk about. We've talked about doctors and the junior doctor strike, and you know, we mentioned. You know, with the King's diagnosis of um, cancer, there was a, uh, a, a report that said around 300,000 people have paid out of pocket privately, um, showing that the failings of a public, free at the point of use, universal healthcare system is failing. And if people are able to afford private healthcare, great, good. But what about the people that can't afford it? What about the people that are unable to get the treatments that they vitally need to have you know, good health and well-being? And dentistry comes into that. I'm, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on de- dentistry in this country, but I haven't had good access to my dentist. Um, I always feel very awkward about it. I know that a lot of um, students um, don't have good access to healthcare either. But there has been a political incentive very recently of having an NHS dentistry recovery plan um, that was announced, um, I think, just at the start of this month again. Um, And essentially, it's incentivizing dentists to set up practices within England, which typically had poor access um, to NHS care and offering apparently around a £20,000 bonus for doctors to be able to see patients who haven't had dentist appointments in over two years. I wouldn't like to admit on air when was the last time I had my dentist appointment. I'm not sure whether you're... Yeah, I think it's a very, very long time ago. And in actual fact, very recently, I'd actually tried to get... uh, Because I actually moved recently, so I tried to get an appointment. And uh, let's just say they don't have an appointment for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we're not alone in that, apparently. Um, but the whole point is that we, the government is now aiming to get around 1.5 more million treatments in the next 12 months. Will it get to that? People are um, not optimistic about it. Um, the whole idea is that it's just changing the system in the first place. You know, no, it's not an incentive. Apparently, you get around £15 um, extra in order to... Um, put yourself into this incentive um, scheme um, and it would only realistically and I read this just now help pay for around 250 dentists um, which is about one percent of the workforce so again it seems like it's a lot of political um, pandering 
um, with not much um, effort behind it. There's been an investigation by the BBC just to say that around nine in 10 NHS practices um, in, in the UK in 2022 weren't accepting new adult patients for treatment on the NHS, which I guess is what you experienced very recently when you tried to get into a new practice as well. Um, yes, I did. And it's, it, it's, it's just quite, it's quite, quite extraordinary because at the same time, dentist training posts are actually increasing, um, but we've yet to see any sort of significant difference in the practice of dentistry um, here. And I think it points more widely towards health inequalities. So I just came back from a GP placement um, from a town two hours away, one way, four hours traveling there and back. And I couldn't help but notice how I would say around 85% of the patients that I saw had a significant amount of teeth missing. And when I say significant, I wouldn't be surprised if they only had five teeth uh, uh, overall. I was in a very impoverished town, um, but, but it, but it sh- drew starkly on the health inequalities mm. that is existing in this country. And again, I'll just, just, just to point out, you know, moving on from the dentistry on here, a, a recent report said that we've now experienced around 1 million, or just over 1 million people have died unnecessarily due to health inequalities um, since tw- 2011 to 2019. And of course, that's exacerbated during the COVID-19 pandemic as well. But this concept of austerity and of political uh, social inequalities um, is having very real health effects. I'm not sure what your sort of experiences are, Omar, or any observations that you've had just on health inequalities or just, just from a layman's perspective. Yeah, just to put my two cents into this conversation, uh, maybe we'll, I'll get some uh, discussion out of you or maybe a bit of hate. Uh, so um, recently, uh, dentistry, of course, is a big problem. I tried to, I was able to register really easily, actually, with the dentistry. But the only problem was to get an appointment was very, very difficult. So I sort of have given up on my pursuit on that. Uh, probably going to accept the fact that I will never, I will never see a dentist in my life again until I, if I reach. The unless age. you shell out five hundred pounds or whatever. Unless, unless my my company helps me subsidise a bit of that money and gives me private health care or insurance. Yeah, that's the only way I see it, to be honest. Or until I reach the uh, pension age, and then they would just have to give it to me. <laughs> um, secondly, um, GPs. Um, I think. I have tried, so my GP, local GP, I'm still with the same GP since uh, I've been a kid. But the problem I'm facing now is that they've made it digitalized. So you can't even call in uh, to to the GP. You have to fill out a form before you can get to the stage. Now, I wanted a... A simple checkup and they said to me in the reply back to me via text is that uh, if it's not of any if it, it, what I'm paraphrasing is that if it's nothing serious then you can just go go do it privately and I was just mm-hmm. like shocked at what is going on uh, I yeah. should be able to just go there and get a checkup simple as my parents are actually struggling themselves because they they see this as i see why the, the gp have put this in place that let's get a screening before they yeah. come to us so that we can identify why they are coming they're not just unnecessarily coming here asking for prescriptions I'm not saying that parents do but just uh, uh, some people may try to do this and that we can cut gp waiting times in that way but it actually is hurting people I, I, I'm, I'm thinking in the long run 
because not everyone at this age of them or at this generation yet is very digitalized with their or very digital friendly so they just give up and that's what my parents have done in one and two incidents i said okay you know what i'm just gonna give up let me just ride this wave out and then we'll see now the effect i can see maybe is that if it does go serious and it does go unnoticed and instead of going to the gpu they'll just go to a and e and that's overburden in the first place as it is and that's only the last resort so you can see some pulling and shoving taking place and where it'll end up at the end um that's my two cents at the moment but there's one more thing i want to come on but i want to hear from you what who further you got to say before i uh, touch your nerve yeah no 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 i i definitely agree with this i mean i saw this i i was just on my gp placement for the past week and i i heard precisely what you said as a doctor on the other other side of the phone the doctor said if you if it's not serious unfortunately we cannot see you and that's harsh. That's horrible. That goes against the very foundational principles of the NHS. Free at the point of need, at the point of care. You're not going there to burden someone unnecessarily. You feel like you need a checkup. You're entitled to a checkup. You paid taxes for a tech checkup. The GP doesn't not want to see you. He, he or she, they, they're there to be able to help their patients. So I, I think doctors are also forced, forced in this unfortunate situation where you've got 8 million patients in a backlog. What are they to do? A GP only has 10 minutes to see a patient. That's 10 minutes to listen to what the patient's got wrong, 10 minutes to understand the disease, 10 minutes to, and within those 10 minutes, equally to then diagnose, um, to diagnose and then also manage. So that's quite a short amount of time. A GP is always running late, but it's unfortunate. And I've also seen this as well. So in the GP practice that I was shadowing at, they've also introduced a digitalized triaging system. And I saw a patient come in. She was really upset. She said, I spoke to someone on the phone. They told me what's the issue. I told them about it. And now I'm here. And I have to tell you about it again. I just keep repeating myself and nothing's happening. Um, and that's another thing as well. What, you know, yes, we're putting digital systems in place. Yes, it can sometimes help triage people. Unfortunately, in your case, it pushed you back. Um, but then, who who is it that we're bringing in the elderly population the uneducated population the immigrant population any non-english speaking population they're all sort of disadvantaged by this digitalization and health tech and this is something that we know that we're taught of it's another exacerbation of health inequality you know it's called inverse care so it's unfortunate that we're not trying to be more sensitive around that and it's also unfortunate that their doctors mm. are very easily able to say just go get private just go yeah. see it privately yeah. you shouldn't so have to maybe the problem here is that we're digitalizing the the wrong sector maybe is that is that something we we should think about maybe we shouldn't bring in technology that that that, that, that is interesting i i haven't thought about it whether you know maybe there are some sectors that shouldn't be digitalized at all i do mm. think that you know there's digital tools that has its place and purpose within healthcare mm. you know we've got there's a new digital ai that basically Ooh, listens into a doctor you know, the ai coming in again um, and <laughs> it listens in to the doctor patient consultation so the doctor doesn't have to turn your back towards you in their rolly chair and then just type away on their computer um, they can just sit there, listen to you, look you in the eyes and understand what's wrong with you. And the AI sort of technology is able to listen in and write all the notes that it needs to. So I think there there are some brilliant and beautiful examples where we can digitalize healthcare. It's all about how sensitive it is. And it's all about thinking about 
how you're helping the patient in this case and in your case in particular it's not helping anyone um and you said you had to write out a form was that a physical form that you had to write out no it was um it was like it was like a google form it was like a google yeah. form um but it's just uh you put options and different screens pop up but then you have to put more information you have to put pictures yeah. up uh give a one to five rating can be is usually one or two pages but it just seems a long long thing when you are just ill and you're like i just want to see a doctor just get me to yeah. the person that that that's the unfortunate thing when people are ill especially you know even if you're just ill and you have a sore throat sometimes you're just so scared you don't even know what's wrong with your body you just need that human contact to tell you you're okay you can carry on or you're not okay but we'll make you better um and it's unfortunate that we're putting a lot of steps in place against that but to reassure you no doctor in faith wants that for their patient mm, no I, I i hope hope not well now i want to touch your nerve a bit and uh, it's Go something on. that i've uh, been contemplating um um it's a lot of thing a lot of uh, conversation that i'm hearing on the radio um whilst driving and it's the fact whether we should put a mandatory service period for mm. uh, doctors or dentists or de- dentists are doctors as well i guess um yeah or whether they those who are going through universities uh you know who reside here they should be uh, working for the NHS because at the end of the day they are benefiting of taxpayer money because uh, you know everyone's getting uh, I guess uh, you, uh, do, you, do you guys still get bursaries? We do yeah. but I can touch on that Fine. But, uh, uh, I see what you're saying But it's, yeah it's, uh, overall what I'm saying is that sh- uh, rather than um, the the students who become qualified doctors uh, what 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 is happening? Well, you can correct me if I'm wrong. What's happening is that they work for a couple of years, uh, or maybe even less than a couple of years, and then just move off to another country because, of course, there's better pay, uh, 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 better conditions, etc. Sounds already bad that I'm uh, pointing this out, but it's slightly more better than for uh, to to be working here. Uh, mm. The effect that we're having here is that we're getting a shortage. Uh, it's the reason why we have long waiting times. It's the reason yeah. why uh, all of these problems, I guess, are coming out. It's one of the reasons, not the main reason, but it's one of the reasons. So I wanted to maybe uh, t- uh, touch base with you, see what you think, uh, is, whether these um, suggestions that are being made, not by, uh, but by public as well, because these calls that are coming in other radio stations, which I listen to slightly better than Voice Islam, is that this is what they would like to see happen. What is the stance of a doctor or trying to become a doctor, a student's uh, opinion? I'll, I'll tell you my stance. And it's, I don't think that this is the true perception of, of patients and the mm. public. Mm. I think this is in the context of people are so disappointed, frustrated, despaired yeah. that they just want to see a doctor and they think, this sounds like a brilliant issue. Why don't we do that? Mm. Issue number one, how are medical students, dentist, dental students actually benefiting currently from taxpayer money? Mm. Maybe, yes, you get bursaries. Maybe, yes, you get student finances. But so does every other employer. Mm. We don't yet then fasten them into an industry that they don't want to be in. But yet we're able to do that or we're able to think that we can do that with um, mm-hmm. dentists as well. It's not fair. Mm. Every profession should have the freedom to choose what industry they want to work in where they want to work in Mm. number two for some people for me for example i'm not i i don't get student loans because i'm a graduate medical student i pay out of pocket 
So I'm not actually benefiting at all. The one benefit that we do have is that we get clinical exposure, clinical placements from and within the NHS. But again, that's not without caveat. Sometimes there's not enough places. Sometimes there's strikes. Sometimes I have to pay out of pocket to travel four hours each day to get to my placement. But to say that because we've benefited over the four or five years of our training from the NHS, that we then should do mandatory 10 years, is to say that that's the problem of why the NHS is failing. It's actually not. The reason why we have a staff retention and recruitment, retention meaning to keep people, and recruitment meaning to get people on board in the healthcare system, is not because people just don't, people want to leave because they're greedy. People would love to stay in the NHS. People would love to stay in the UK. You've got to imagine everyone who immigrates to the Dubai or to the US or to Canada or to Australia, they, they're leaving behind their families. And if you go on Med Twitter, you see that people have to think about it for two or three years. They've given so much of their time and their own money for postgraduate exams. You know, as a doctor, in the context of you not having enough money to pay appropriate rent, you then have to pay £400 to the GMC, £500 for this exam, £700 for that exam. So there's a lot of costs in, in becoming the doctor and in training to become a doctor. So then to finally reach at the breaking point to say, actually, I just want to leave and get a pay abroad, I think it's completely right and fair. I, I, and I don't think that it, this is going to solve the issue within the NHS that we're seeing today because the issue, unfortunately, is underfunding, underservicing within the NHS. So if you force these medical students to stay within the NHS for 10 years, what's not to say that they'll, they'll leave after those 10 years? Hmm. That, you know, it's a plaster over a bullet wound. Um, it, that, is, that is true. Um, I do see where you're coming from. And I think you make good points. Um, I guess the I, I will say this as well, just, just before I put more I balance, noticed, maybe. No, just for <laughs> balance, maybe perhaps the opposite. But um, I I do feel like, and this is my personal perspective, that going into the NHS is almost like you're going into the army <laughs> because you have to be stationed somewhere. You have to go here. You have to go there. You have no say in where you want to live. You have no say. And now you know there's conversations about you know, forcing people to stay there for 10 years, that's almost like the army, right? Mm. You're being deployed, you're being stationed, you're being this and that. Medicine, unfortunately, yes, people think it's a higher calling and it's a vacation. It's a job. It's a mm. job that at the end of the day should be able to pay your bills, that at the end of the day should be able to help finance your family. But unfortunately, right now, it's not. And that's the situation that we're in. Yeah, because there is there is um, a differentiation between other jobs and being becoming a doctor. You're a servant mm. of humanity at the end of the day. Uh, you have the last. You're basically the last line of defense, uh, uh, I guess, uh, to someone's uh, uh, life, life yeah. and death. Really, right? Of course, God Almighty is the ultimate. Um, be a uh, power that can determine uh but uh the 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 i guess you call a subsidiary power you want to say or the trust that uh god's put on in you is is the doctor i guess right uh with yeah. uh so there is huge responsibility in in this area um I'll, it will be nice to know if whether you know if there are any other countries that uh ask their student or ask their students uh to stay on for a minimum period of term, because I know within the league, uh, not the league, uh, within the league world, in, in a sense, I know that when, for instance, at my firm, 
um, when you are a tr- you are trained as a solicitor, or and you are paid for uh, paid by uh, the firm to go out to do um, a course. For instance, you have yeah. to do the solicitor's course. It costs a lot of money, about fifteen twenty k. The firm will pay it for you, but the stipulation is that you once you qualify, you will have to stay a certain number of years with us uh, yeah. before you're allowed to move ahead or if you want to move ahead. Uh, and that's sort of, I think, the sort of underlying uh, people are trying to make. I'm sure it happens yeah. in other sectors as well, but people yeah. would uh, certainly say that that seems a sort of fair approach because yeah. what at the end of the day what we're seeing is that talent is going elsewhere to other systems where Absolutely. people actually come into the UK to study for medicine UK is one of the spearheads of um, medical uh, ground one of one of them not probably the top but one of the spearheads of uh, the, the medical world and uh, what we see is that people are benefiting from it but the people themselves will not be benefiting from them because they are moving to, and I totally understand, to better conditions, better pay, and much more better lifestyle choice. And yes, they make the uh, sacrifice to leave the, the family because uh, you do forget about that. You forget that at the end of the day that doctors are human beings at the end of the day. Yes, they have responsibility, but they are human beings and they deserve uh, uh, to work in conditions where they are, feel like they're respected, but they have enough uh, tools to work with. So... I think I I also understand the other side of it that there is a lot of frustration in place, um, you know that people are not seeing their doctors. There is no face to face left anymore, and that's where uh, you can also blame the fact that we've become so um, digitalized, so um, hooked onto this one screen, which is our telephones. Uh, I'm sorry, our mobile phones, our screens, our TV, that we rely on um this um uh, invisible touch i guess you can call it yeah. uh from uh human being that this is now translated into the medical world not that it's a bad thing it does have its positive but it does not working out for everyone and i would say not everyone being the majority of people yeah i to your point about the contrast with you know, solicitors and yeah. you know, getting training contracts, yeah. training contracts. Yeah. That sounds absolutely fair. And mm. that's exactly what should happen if that was the case in the medical world. Mm. But unfortunately, no one pays for medical exams for mm. any postgraduate. Mm. So what we're seeing is that once you have to do two years of foundation training in this country. Mm-hmm. So you spend around six years maximum in medical school, five or four if you're in particular courses, but six years maximum. And then you have to do two years foundation training you're already a doctor but you're a junior doctor on those two years and then after those two years is one of the points in which a lot of people decide to leave but sometimes people go into training as well in order to go to training you have to pay for your exams just like you said you have to pay for those training contracts which are 15 or 20 thousand pounds in law that's Mm. quite expensive Mm. in medicine that's 700 pounds a year and on top of that you have to take out study leave and that study leave isn't always paid leave. Mm. So actually, you're reducing your pay on top of paying for out-of-pocket to practice in a profession that you're trained for. And so no one is paying that for you. So this is what I mean when the NHS hasn't actually offered anything to its doctors in that sense, in, in the sense of protecting their training and their competency or whatever else. That's all out-of-pocket. That's all from the doctors themselves. Um, on the point of 
is there any other health system that does this? Not to my mind that come, you know, I don't think Australia forces any of its students or, or, or doctors or dentists to stay, neither does Canada or um, America. But I, I will tell you that the recent survey did find that the British Medical Association found that around 40%, 40% of junior doctors are looking or considering of leaving their profession. Now, that could be that they're leaving medicine overall, perhaps going to health tech, or that's perhaps looking into um, going into Australia because it's better paid, less hours, and better quality of life. At the end of the day, you, you also mentioned that you sometimes forget that doctors are humans. That's true, but that's also politically purposeful. Think about in the COVID pandemic, what did we call our doctors? We called them heroes. We said clap for heroes. They weren't doctors, they weren't human, they were heroes. We cloak doctors in this heroic sense of responsibility because we want to forget that they also bleed and get burdened and they have burnout and they worry and they stress and they go home and they have foods to, you know, mouths to feed and bills to pay just like everyone else. A doctor is human and medicine is a job and a job should be appropriately covering for everything that we'd expect from our employer. I do think, and it is frustrating, that we don't get to see the doctors that we need to see. Even when we're talking about cancer waiting times, it's unfortunate and disgusting that, you know, around 60% of cancer patients upon their new diagnosis are able to have an appointment within 32 days. Even 32 days is far too long. Cancer is a very serious condition to have. Um, And it's a very sort of dire state of affairs within healthcare. But like I said, forcing medical and dental students to commit to 10 years in the NHS without any sort of pay, without any sort of financial incentive, what is that going to do? Currently, right now, there is already a scheme that somewhat, I think, is designed to force students to stay within the NHS. And, you know, listeners might have heard of it. It's called the Medical Apprenticeship Scheme, which is quite extraordinary. So just this year, some universities, or rather a few universities, have started apprenticeships for medicine. So you can become a medical doctor by training on the wards in hospital um, and having around one day of teaching in universities a week. It's a clever scheme because it's designed under the narrative of it's for widening participation, for people that weren't considering medicine because of financial incentives, you actually get paid because it's an apprenticeship. Um, So you're not in debt, you're actually the opposite, you're making money while studying to become a doctor. But if you think about it, it's also service provision. You're an apprentice. That means from the age of 18 to 21, 23, you will be in hospital. You'll be carrying out duties that doctors should have carried out. But it's under the guise of it's an apprenticeship. It's good for you. It's widening participation. And so we're already seeing these incentives being put into practice. And there's also conversations around because this is a degree, is it going to be accredited by the General Medical Council like a normal medical degree? If it's not, does that mean that anyone who becomes a medical apprentice, they have to stay in the NHS? because no one abroad will recognize their degree. So that's another thing that people are skeptical of. So overall, it's unfortunate, the situation that we're in, Mm. but I don't think forcing people to stay for 10 years in the health system and the health services is way to go. Yeah, no, no, it's... um yeah, no, that's um, it's it's a conversation to to be had for sure. Um, to understand both sides, um, I think uh, we, I think we are deprived of um, quality healthcare uh, in the UK. Um, unfortunately, there are circumstances and factors that are greatly um, present, not. Uh, 
a fault well fault of course always lies with the government because they are the ones um sort of managing the whole service with uh, but you know there's a blame goes to the people blame goes to uh, the doctors the, the those who are uh, heads of the trusts uh, those who are students are getting blamed and ultimately uh, everyone's looking at everyone at this moment and we will f- wait to find out what happens because as hamad mentions uh, there's a strike coming up again yep well, it's currently happening five days up until Wednesday. Ah. Um, that will be the last strike for this mandate. But I'm pretty sure, considering how the union has been going, that mm. there might be some fresh strikes on the horizon. Well, if yeah, that is that is that might be the case. That might be the case. Uh, we are going to take a short break again. Uh, we'll be back with the last um, sort of segment of the show. And um, again, I just want to remind you all uh, that you've been patiently listening to us. Then just pick up the phone and give us a ring. Maybe you want to give us your two cents as well uh, on 0208-68778. Or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam. Join us after a short break. <laughs> Allah has decreed, most surely, I will prevail, I and my messengers. Verily, Allah is powerful, mighty. The Arabic expression Al-Aziz means the mighty, one who is dominant but cannot be dominated, one who is powerful and superior over all else. Al-Aziz is that striking being who alone has the power to bestow prophethood upon man and to guide mankind towards righteousness. It is this eminent attribute of Allah that has allowed great prophets of the past to succeed in their respective missions. The chief of all prophets, the holy prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was undoubtedly the most cherished recipient of God's limitless favors. At the dawn of the victory of Mecca, the Muslims marched wholeheartedly. After being betrayed by their treaty-bound brothers, this was a day where the inhabitants of Mecca witnessed God's might. The reign of cruelty, which had caused the followers of Islam unimaginable agony, was brought to an abrupt end. The peaceful conquest of Mecca was made possible only through God and His might. Allah's might is widely experienced by all prophets of this world. The promised Messiah on whom be peace came at a time 
when people had become void of morality and were ruled by Molvis and extremists who no one dared to oppose. The promised Messiah on whom be peace expressed that at the time of his claim, not many believed in him. In fact, he faced an onslaught of ignorance, hatred, and ridicule. The promised Messiah on whom be peace faced numerous fatwas and false court cases were made against him. In these moments, it seemed almost impossible that the promised Messiah on whom be peace and his godly mission would prevail. But it was the might, Al-Aziz, that silenced the jesters, created love where there had been hatred, and brought justice in times of unfairness. Al-Aziz stood like a mountain safeguarding the promised Messiah on whom be peace from all forms of harm. This was the might of the powerful God that enabled his devout servant to reign over his opponents and to once again radiate the ever-bright light of Islam upon the darkened world. Al-Aziz is the great altruistic God whose power is dominant over all others. His might is a magnificent sign of the truth of his prophets and their prevalence is evidence of his existence. This world would not be as it is without the mighty Creator. It has been written and proven time and time again that He will prevail. How then can one deny His flourishing superiority? Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Saturday Morning Life. Your Joe, myself, Umar Bhatti, and my co host, Hamad Khan. Well, we've got the last uh, 15 minutes left of our live show today. Um, we've discussed a lot today, uh, but it is your chance now to maybe give us your opinion on a few things that you want us to discuss and maybe. We'll give you our opinions as well. It, you can call us on 0208 
78 uh, or at Voice Islam UK. You can tweet us. <coughs> now, um, moving towards uh, but more the Islamic point of view of all of the discussion that we've had, um, I think it's really important to remember, Hamad, that people often lose, you know, when you come into position of uh, responsibility, people often lose this, uh, their sense of being. And it's always important to distinguish um, that, you know, between yourself and the office that you hold. Uh, because it is not a position of power. It's actually a position of trust. And that's what God Almighty says in the Holy Quran, that um, it is a position of trust uh, that he's placed upon uh, the people. Um, and also, um, it's something really, really uh, to really great thing to see that Islam has emphasized uh, and then I'm paraphrasing this to even humble yourself right just think of this much that uh, sorry I've just remembered where it's come from is the I believe it's the uh, promised Messiah uh, who's uh, qu- uh, quoted this he said that even if you have or maybe it was the Holy Prophet maybe I'll, I'll have to I'll have to look this up but uh, maybe you, you will know this uh, that uh, that even if you have uh, a pride uh, which is the size of uh, a pea or a, a, a seeded must that's it, then you will sort of enter hellfire or you know you'll be done for. That's this level of humility that you've got to possess when you are at, at the realm uh, to put it uh, you know uh, and that's something that really puts me into uh, my uh, practice every day that I think look let me not act as if I'm this big guy I'm no one at the end of the day I am just another one of the seven billion people or rising to eight billion people in the world and I have no authority and I'm just going to go about my day-to-day life just like that isn't that quite beautiful uh, Hamad I you know you do I, I completely agree and you know when you're talking about how you know not to lose yourself in positions of power i wasn't going to go down that route of you know completely humbling yourself and removing that ego mm. but it reminded me of a quote from uh Zafullah Khan Saab, who was the luminary of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community who was the first foreign minister of Pakistan and the first um president of the national assembly of the UN if that's correct if i got that right um but regardless a very highly educated, established, and esteemed man who, at the height of his career, when he was asked by a um, European journalist what is his most proudest achievement, um, or what is he most proud of, and again, you know, that's sort of an egotistical situation to be in, to think of yourself as someone who's achieved a lot. His immediate reaction, again, in the context of it being a European journalist, a non-Muslim journalist, was to say that my pr- uh, I, I'm proud that I have recognized the imam of the age, Hazrat Mr. Ghulam Ahmed, that I'm an Ahmadi Muslim. And I, there's a physical recording, not physical, but there's a recording of that interview um, on YouTube. And I remember when I heard that, I got goosebumps because I cannot imagine being put in that position and to not lose your identity, as you said. You know, we talked about the UK and the current issues that we have and how, unfortunately, political leaders lose their identities of their followers when they get in places of power. But to be able to maintain that, I think, is superhuman. I think it's I, I, it's it's um, it, it's a very rare quality, and it's a quality which you have to have only by keeping yourself humble 
and having humility and recognizing that whatever power you do have, it's a reflection of God's grace and mercy onto you. Um, and I think when you read out that quote just now about not even having a mustard seed of arrogance, um, it brought into mind um, that personality. Even better, even better. Uh, a perfect example to use someone who was uh, humble, uh, served in humility, was an Ahmadi Muslim, and uh, served in very important roles throughout uh, you know, the post-World War II eras, uh, Pakistan's first foreign minister, uh, the ICJ president, and the UN General Assembly's president. Uh, so yeah, that is a great reminder. Thanks for that. Just wanted to touch uh, on quite a bit on um, cost of living because we, I guess this uh, t- term that was coined, uh, we're sort of still in a cost of living crisis. Um, prices are still going up. Um, fuel prices have recently just gone up again. Um, so those who are um, motorists like me, insurance prices have gone up i am renewing my car insurance and that has gone exponentially higher and i don't see any reason why it's gone higher should automatically actually come down but i don't know why this has gone so high but in any case we're also in a recession uh the uk but it's expected to come back again uh was expected to um uh, recover very quickly from it the Ger- Germany are also in a, rece- a technical recession, more than an official recession, but they're more in a technical recession. That's a bit more implication for the wider EU. Um, and we can see that it it's all tying uh, to this uh, level of frustration that people are starting uh, to uh, have uh, with the governments, with the uh, people in general. Uh, you can see how people are starting to react um to each other uh this a bit unsavory uh, taste that is being left and i don't want to put a damp mood but if you look at the conditions of uh, people that they need to have for them to become even more sour it does start with the eco- uh, the economical uh economical power that we possess and it all leads around to a wrong direction uh, what is your view on that, Hamad? Don't you think that we are heading towards something not very good? Oh, I think we. Uh, may- oh no, Hamad, you still here? Can you can you hear? Yeah, me? we can, can hear you. Hear we can still hear you. Yep. I I was just going to say I always do think that that it's it's always the opti- optimist in me that says that whenever I feel like we're on the verge of something that's bigger and on the verge of calamity and. We always hear, you know, doom and despair, um, news stories and headlines and it pointing towards a bigger global issue. I, I always think that it's also an opportunity um, for to, to, to point us towards the right direction. Um, I get solace from, this is like really weird, but I, I, a couple of years ago I found out that the, the true definition of apocalypse, by the way, um, is not like an ending and like world ending. And I know sometimes people feel like we're almost in multiple apocalypses every day of the week. Um, but actually, apocalypse is also, the meaning of it is an uncovering and an unveiling of a new past. And so equally, when we have economic turmoil, we have um, disruptions and ruptures of peace, and we, and we have wars and calamities, I, I think that they all point us towards the recognition that we are here for a very short time, um, and that our souls are enduring, and that we need to um, basically just foster good attitudes towards ourselves and towards God. Um, and yes, that there's suffering, 
but that suffering also serves as a reminder. Um, and the opportunity, that's what I always look at. Always taking a very positive light uh, during calamitous times, uh, Hamad, that you are. Uh, yeah. That is uh, that, that, that. Thanks for mentioning that. Now I'm taking a positive view as well. Um, but more to that later. Well, we don't really have much time. But I did want to mention two good news stories that sort of have come out that from my research. First of all, uh, for the more, more younger audience, there was of course yesterday a match for hope of uh, that um, took place yesterday in Qatar where big celebrity YouTubers and former footballers took part. They raised $8 million, uh, $8 million I believe, together uh, for uh, that cause. Um, so that's something very positive to see that people are still taking uh, time out to um, do good and um, continuing to uh, contribute to society even with their high status uh, in you know this life that they have. And secondly... No, it can. This can be a good story, and you know we've spoken a lot about the environment uh, about uh, on this subject, and I'm a very fond um, believer of this idea, and a very f- big fan of Lidl. Uh, Lidl at the moment are trialing out this scheme whereby a five p tax on bottles uh, that uh, ha- that is on on the recyclable bottles. Uh, this actually happens in Germany. Uh, and I was very surprised when Lidl wasn't, first of all, when I moved here, I wasn't surprised that Lidl was here. And second of all, that this system wasn't adopted here as well. So what they are doing at the moment in the Scottish cities of Glasgow and Edinburgh, I believe, is that uh, they're trying out, uh, trying out uh, to recycle back the uh, bottles that you use. Uh, and you'll be given that back as 5p uh, to use either in Lidl or donate to a charity that they ha- are partnered up with. So that is a really good news story, I think. Uh, Hamad, we're, we're, you're a big environmentalist. Uh, you'd like to see your streets cleaner and people living healthy and see the natural beauty. I, London, I, I, I do, yeah, especially after coming from Dubai and seeing how you know the streets can be cleaner, but also mm. just getting clean energy. Yeah. Um, always a fan of Lidl as well. Lo- of love course. the place and it's great to hear about this. Um, environmental cause. Yeah, uh, that is. I think that could that could definitely be adopted throughout the whole of UK at least. Uh, those are my two positive good news stories. Um, that just leads me to say that uh, you know, thank you very much for listening to the show. Um, hopefully, you have uh, learned a few things, or if not, uh, you know, just enjoyed listening to us. Uh, I'd like to thank our producers and, of course, my co-host Hamad Khan for today and uh, the team behind Voice Islam, including the technicians, for um, facilitating this live show for us. Um, You can join us again next week, uh, Saturday, where uh, another team will be taking our spot and we'll be back again in four weeks' time because... Believe it or not, we are yet again close to Ramadan and that month of uh, spiritual rejuvenation will be there and we will, of course, with whilst fasting, fingers crossed, we all will be fasting, um, we'll be there to present to you another show. Uh, so look out for us. Um, we'll see what we'll talk about. Hopefully the picture of the world will be much better, but if not, there's always um, things, uh, topics to talk about, people that are concerned about. So we'll be delving into that. But that just leads me to say, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.
The Promised Messiah, peace be on him, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Islam, states, When the blessings of Allah are near at hand, He provides the prerequisites for the acceptance of prayer. The heart is stirred, warms up, and begins to glow. When, however, the moment is not opportune for the acceptance of prayer, the heart lacks that tranquility which results in turning towards God. However much one exerts oneself, the heart does not respond by exhibiting willingness. It is so because at times God exerts His decree so that His will be done, and at other times He concedes to the prayer of His servants. That is why as long as I do not perceive the signs of God's willingness, I do not entertain much hope for the acceptance of prayer. At such times, I submit to the will of my Lord with greater pleasure than that which I derive from the acceptance of prayer. Indeed, I know that the blessings and fruits of this submission to the will of God are greater by far. You're listening to Voice of Islam.